Top Stories of the Week Victoria Misses Lockdowns Also, Chaos in Colombo And the UK discovers it's not very good at regime change anymore This is News Weekly And I miss the Hubble telescope, I really do Hello, I'm Sammy Shah and welcome to News Weekly, where we punch the news in the headlines weekly. From mandate to bad date news now. Since COVID-19 began spreading, the Australian state of Victoria and its capital city, Melbourne, have shown the world how to deal with the pandemic. Between 2020 and 2021, Melbourne became the most locked down city in the world. Melbournians endured 262 days or nearly nine months of restrictions during six separate lockdowns. Which is probably why it seems Melbourne's new Minister for Health is making decisions guaranteed to take Melbourne into a seventh lockdown. Victoria's health minister has rejected pleas from the state's top public health official to bring back mask mandates. That's right. Apparently the lesson learned in the last two weeks, where the stark contrast in death tolls between places that did and didn't listen to health advice, has been to ignore that health advice. Here's Mary Ann Thomas, Victoria's health minister as of three months ago. The advice from the Chief Health Officer was to uh, mandate mask wearing. I have chosen not to uh, extend mandates for mask wearing. So why would she do that? Does she feel there's just still too much traffic? Maybe she's in the hip pocket of big ventilator. Or perhaps she just needs another lockdown to catch up on taxes and naps, which, to be honest, I can kind of relate to and might even be able to get behind. Because for two years now, we were told by our politicians that listening to the medical advice regarding everything from lockdowns to wearing masks indoors was essential. I'll follow the advice. Let's get all the right advice. My job is following the public health advice. So now, with 737 infected people in emergency rooms and that number climbing, while 1,500 hospital workers stayed home because of COVID themselves, the health officer's advice has been to bring masks back into schools, hospitals and indoor spaces like shops, restaurants and businesses. But... That hasn't convinced Mary Ann Thomas about the effectiveness of a mask mandate. Further mandating of masks was not the most effective way to get the message out about the importance of mask wearing. Apparently, the chief health officer and medical association saying masks need to be mandated, otherwise COVID is going to spread uncontrollably again, isn't as effective at making us all wear masks as doing nothing. What could possibly be driving that decision-making process? I wonder if Paul Guerra, the chief executive of Victoria's Chamber of Commerce and Business, knows. Well, here he is making a statement about the decision to ignore health advice with a giant fucking grin on his face. Today's decision puts the decision-making back in the hands of business. So there we go. Health decisions made by businesses. Because if there's one thing businesses love, it's looking out for our best health concerns. It's probably why we have new rules around COVID infections suddenly being rolled out. The period of immunity after someone has had COVID will be slashed from 12 weeks to 28 days. Positive cases will also be able to leave isolation to take household members to the shops, but must remain in the car and wear a mask. Well, if things are that relaxed, maybe the business industry has it right and the mask mandate just isn't necessary. I mean, we're also used to COVID by now. What could be new? 
A new coronavirus subvariant, BA5, is fueling yet another wave of COVID infections across the globe. BA5 has proven to be a very wily variant, able to, at times, slip past some of our current defenses, the protections we get from vaccines and from previous infections. Okay, okay. So a more dangerous subvariant is spreading and the Victorian government is suddenly ignoring its own previous decision-making and instead bending the knee to businesses instead of unpopular but essential health advice. Does anyone know why? Good evening. With an election looming, the Andrews government is no longer explicitly following health advice. Ah, there we go. A state election in November, which is more likely to be won by the Labour Party if they don't make us wear masks, which apparently we now hate more than, you know, dying. You know, it's really hard to shit on anti-vaxxers when the state government starts acting like them to win an election. Still, maybe next lockdown, I'll learn to bake bread. I didn't get round to it in the last six. Swimming in Sri Lanka news now. Unpopular prime ministers who promised to resign then don't quite do it seem to be the hot trend of this month, replacing last month's popular trend of everyone watching and loving Top Gun Maverick. Well, this time the highway to the danger zone is occupied by protesters in Sri Lanka, where as of this recording, the prime minister is hiding in a bunker somewhere while the president just landed in Singapore. Not because you wanted to stay at that cool hotel which has the giant boat-shaped swimming pool on top, although he might end up hanging out there for a few days, especially since there are protesters currently enjoying his pool back in Colombo. Pictures have also emerged today showing protesters bathing in the swimming pool of the presidential palace. No, the president is in Singapore because everyone in Sri Lanka hates him. Luckily for him, he has a plan. When President Gautabe Rajapaksa fled the country for the Maldives yesterday, he made Vikramasinghe the acting president. Which is a great promotion for Prime Minister Ranil Vikramasinghe, except for the one detail. The entire country hates him as well, as shown by these protesters talking to Al Jazeera. He's a mastermind and please, I am asking international community, don't trust Vikramasinghe. He's the biggest villain in Sri Lanka. Prime Minister is very cunning fox. He's uh, ruined my country. We won't win uh, our uh, revolution. In fact, both of them are hated, which is why everyone wants them to resign entirely. Both leaders had earlier promised to stand down over the country's crippling economic crisis, but neither has done so. In the prime minister business, saying you'll resign that not resigning is called doing a Boris. So how exactly did it end up here for Sri Lanka? How did things get so dire? Luckily, here's an analyst on BBC to explain it all with characteristic British understatement. Sri Lanka is in real difficulties at the moment. First of all, there's almost complete economic collapse. Inflation is more than 50%, food prices soaring up 80%, and transport costs more than doubling. And that's having a real impact. There are about 22 million people in Sri Lanka, and the UN Food Programme says that more than 6 million of them don't know where their next meal is coming from. He wasn't kidding when he said real difficulties. In BBC speak, real difficulties is basically shit is fucked. How did it get so bad then? Why are there protesters doing laps in the president's pool while the prime minister is begging for help from the army while hiding in a bunker? Well, it all goes back to 2019 when the Rajapaksa government announced deep tax cuts soon after taking office, expecting tourism to pay the bill. 
And then 2020 happened, and we all decided it was much safer staying at home than eating an authentic beef rendang. Soon, fuel shortages kicked in because money ran out, all while corruption continued apace because no matter how bad things get, politicians somehow find ways of keeping their income streams steady. All of which was made worse by massive amounts of foreign debt, much of it owed to China, India and the IMF. Currently, Sri Lanka can barely make the interest on those loans, and while the IMF has said talks are going on to bail out Sri Lanka, it can't exactly do that without a stable government in place. However, Sri Lankans need not feel ashamed about what's taking place in their country because according to analysts, similar situations are likely to occur in Egypt, Tunisia, Pakistan, Burkina Faso, Mali, Chad, Kenya, Ethiopia and South Africa. Oh, and El Salvador, Argentina and Peru. Massive foreign debt, rising fuel prices and food shortages caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and a preponderance of corrupt political classes means the whole world might soon be in for some, quote, real difficulties. Where's Guy Fawkes when you need him? News now. In the UK, the Tories are now in the process of selecting their new leader, who will then become the new Prime Minister, probably after physically dragging Boris Johnson out of 10 Downing Street, still lying about having parties while being caught throwing a midnight rave. The way this works is instead of the entire country voting, the next leader of the party, and thus the next Prime Minister, will be chosen by the Tory party members. Eight brave souls saw what just happened to Boris Johnson and Theresa May before him and David Cameron before her and thought, I can do with some public humiliation of my own. There will be multiple rounds of voting. And it began with the first round. Rishi Sunak, Penny Mordaunt, Liz Truss, Tom Tugendhat, Kemi Badendock, Jeremy Hunt, Nadim Zahawi and Suella Braverman. If almost all of those names sound like Lord of the Rings characters to you, then that's fair. In fact, the most normal sounding name in the bunch is probably Jeremy Hunt. Jeremy Hunt. I'm so sorry, Jeremy Hunt. Of those, only six can make it through the second round of voting, however, which just took place as well. Mordaunt, 67. Sunak, 88. Truss, 50. Those were the front three, with three more squeaking in behind them, while Nadim Zahawi and Jeremy <clears throat> Hunt didn't make it any further. On Monday the 18th of July, all remaining candidates are questioned by the entire party at meetings organised by the 1922 committee. No one knows if the committee members are actually from 1922, although it's probably likely. Then, you guessed it, more rounds of voting. This happens until the 21st of July, when the final two candidates will be revealed. Throughout the rest of July and August, the two candidates will then face Tory party members at hustings around the country. These members will then be able to vote for their choice of leader. Which is when we'll be subjected to questions from random Tory members, like some British geezer named Bazza from Ipswich Fucknuckleshire, who'll ask them how they like to take their tea. And finally, on the 5th of September, the Prime Minister of the UK will be announced. Then one of them has to retrieve the sword from the woman's hand sticking out of the Thames, fight a dragon named Noddy at the top of the magic faraway tree, then eat treacle, whatever that is, while singing all the songs from the lost Beatles albums. Then and only then will UK have a new Prime Minister, replacing this wordsmith. Any one of them would wipe the floor with Captain Crasheroonie's snooze fest, uh, Mr Speaker. The two frontrunners right now are Rishi Sunak and Penny Mordaunt. 
Sunak's an interesting one. Born to Indian parents who migrated to Southampton in the 1960s, he went on to study at Oxford, worked for Goldman Sachs, and then married the daughter of one of India's richest tech billionaires, basically becoming the greatest Indian son ever born to Indian parents in the history of India. He joined the party after supporting Boris Johnson's Leave campaign and was elevated by Johnson all the way up to Chancellor of the Exchequer in 2020. He then betrayed Johnson by demanding his resignation, which triggered the mass resignations of his colleagues and led to Boris Johnson's own resignation announcement. And if that's not impressive enough, he's most likely the richest MP in the UK and, like any respectable rich person, has committed tax fraud. Controversy erupted earlier this year when it was revealed his wife had been avoiding millions of pounds in tax due to her non-domiciled status, despite living with her husband in Downing Street. Penny Mordaunt is also an interesting candidate, graduating from the University of Reading and working for a while as, and I'm not making this up, I promise, a magician's assistant to the then president of the Portsmouth Magical Society and British Ring of the International Brotherhood of Magicians, because apparently everything in the UK is a Neil Gaiman short story. She even worked as head of the foreign press for George W. Bush during his presidential campaigns, which means she put to use her skills at making imaginary bullshit look real. She was UK's first ever female defence secretary under Theresa May. A popular choice within the Tory party, she launched a campaign for prime minister with a three-minute video full of stock footage and metaphors about sailing in which she appears in the last eight seconds. Our leadership has to change. It needs to become a little less about the leader and a lot more about the ship. That might be the worst campaign slogan since Henry VIII tried to sell everyone on Let's Get Ahead. Rishi Sunak also has a campaign video all about his story and how he wants to be a part of everyone else's story, but it isn't as popular as a clip that surfaced from a 2007 documentary on the rise of the working class in which a young Sunak is being interviewed by the BBC. I have friends who are aristocrats, I have friends who are upper class, I have friends who are, you know, working class, but I'm not working class. In the Tory party, not having working class friends would probably be a better campaign slogan than whatever else he's doing. I'm Rishi Sunak and I don't have any working class friends. That's it for this week's edition of News Weekly. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and a review over on iTunes. Thank you to everyone, by the way, who went over to the Chaser Reports uh, iTunes page and left a review for News Weekly on their page. Uh, they have uh, bowed in submission to News Weekly uh, and the war with Chaser Report has now, for now, been called off. I do recommend you listen to them, by the way. They're a great daily podcast. I think they do it twice daily, in fact, because they're maniacs. Um, and I'm a guest on there quite frequently as well. Otherwise, if you do like supporting this podcast, you can also head over to patreon.com slash Samisha. That's S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H. And donate some money to the podcast. It makes it more possible for me to justify the time and effort required in making these things and researching them thoroughly and giving you the best news weekly. 